Sports are starting to come back, and Podcast One Sportsnet has got all the action covered. With tons of different sports podcasts, there is something for everyone. Check out the Rich Eisen Show for your daily coverage, the Steve Austin Show for your favorite stories from Steve Austin's amazing career, the Deegans with Metal Militia star Brian Deegan and his extreme sports-loving family, plus many more. As sports return, be sure to tune in to all the great podcasts with Podcast One Sportsnet so you don't miss any action. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson today, answering all sorts of our listeners' questions. Sam, it looks like based off the title, we're talking over and underpaid players. That was one of our questions. That was one of them. Yeah, and that actually had a uh, you know one person asked and then another person seconded it. So that was a that was a popular one in the we're gonna have a great in the realm of one or more questions or one or more uh, asks. We will have a great show answering all of these questions. Uh, don't forget pff.com. I'm coming out with, with a lot of help from Sam and from Ben Brown, NFL team preview series. All, every one of your teams will get the full breakdown, uh, previewing the 2020 season. That's not 2019 anymore. And we've got ranking season, defensive line linebackers are up this week. You can go back and see wide receivers, tight ends. Our last podcast wide receiver rankings discussion, uh, was uh, was a good one. Got a lot of feedback on that. People love to have their wide receiver takes. So, uh, Sam, do you want to discuss what the plan is going forward here? In, in terms of the in terms of no podcast next week. Yeah, we got to give people an update. Sure. There's no podcast next week. We'll be back the week after that. That's the plan. Yeah. So we're gonna do like a like a regroup, give everybody a break. And then it, it'll be like the 2020 season starts. We can get into all of our division previews and, and just all sorts of fun stuff and hopefully have a lot more uh, positive news about football starting on time and, and being ready to go by the time you're just, back from vacation. Just before we started recording this, you dropped a little nugget to me that, funny enough, right? I was literally reading an article last night before I went to bed that was uh, lamenting like the curse of people that read a ton, right? You read all these things and you say something in your head and then you realize like 25 years later, that's not the way it's actually said. You've yeah. been pronouncing it wrong in your brain for the last 20 years. Yeah. And I was, it was like, what, you know, what are the things you always mispronounce? And you know, when, when you get a question like that, it's difficult to think of them off the top of your head. BDRs. And then you, you found one for me. You turns out that Segway is actually not spelled the same way as the two wheel gyroscopic self-balancing scooter thing. It's spelt in a way that I was saying in my brain whenever I came across that word, seg, as in like a, you know, like a, a mini, a, a bite, a segue uh, nugget, not a, not the full segue. So 
Yeah. Turns out literally like 12 hours ago, I was reading an article about that. And now you just hit me with one. How about I, f- I finally got to teach you something. Yeah. I think I, I, dro- yeah, I just, I rewrote segue in your notes to, to, uh, to spell it the right way. That's all. Right. Yeah. And, turns, uh, out it's, turns out it's spelled differently than I thought it was. Yeah. And you think you're like the, the master, uh, master of English over there. Well, you know, wordsmiths don't always need to get the spelling right. That's what autocorrect is there for. You're a good wordsmith. I did notice. So, you know, you and I, again, we combined on the team previews and I wrote all my, divi- all my player write-ups and then I took yours and, you know, threw them all into the, into the mix. And I was like, man, we've got a, there's only so many ways you can write about every single player uh, in yeah. a position group. It's, <laughs> and we did it with like a very similar style. You probably couldn't even tell the difference if you were reading the article. They're not necessarily the uh, the most fertile ground for wordsmith, you know, flowery writing. No, they're not. So anyway, let's uh, so we're going to again, we'll take we'll take a little break next week. It'll be like a, a regroup. That'll be like our off season, And then we'll come back and uh, get going strong. Uh, looking forward to 2020. For now, uh, let's get into this overpaid and uh, underpaid stuff. I think it, it's a the NFL is just so I, I guess every every league has this to a point, right? The guys on early you know, early in their contracts just aren't paid a whole lot, especially if you're not a first rounder. So you almost immediately go as far as underpaid goes to uh, guys that are performing well on a rookie contract, right? Yeah, I mean, the underpaid guys, they're basically all rookies because of that. The particularly, you know, the first round guys, certainly the high end first round guys actually get paid a decent amount of money on rookie contracts it's anybody that was drafted after the first round that's good you know because those those are the guys that are dramatically outperforming their contracts they have that sort of system of trying to redress that you know performance based pay or whatever it is where they get a little bump based right. off the number of snaps they were playing but it doesn't you know it doesn't take care of the same things so you know anyone anyone that's a rookie on that first contract that that hasn't been paid yet is is massively underpaid but if you sort of you look a little bit beyond that and try and find some guys that that exist otherwise i mean Jameis winston the contract he just signed like you know i'm i'm as anti Jameis winston as anybody out there but the idea that he's earning like 1.1 million dollars this year as somebody's backup is absurd. Like even, yeah, but even in the realm of backup money, that's ridiculous. You have to add the backup context there. If he was a starter on that money, you'd say obviously, but as a backup, it's like, all right, even you as even a backup, I mean, he's field. earning like a third of what Andy Dalton is earning in Dallas. I, I get it. I know that it's still, it's still a good deal. You just don't know what you're going to get from him. So how do you even, you know, how do you even judge? That's what I'm saying. Even in terms like from. even in backup quarterback money, like, Chase Daniel is earning what five times what Jameis is earning. Taysom Hill is earning significantly more. Like, and he's the third string quarterback, presumably. So, mm. like, there's no. I mean, Jameis for a million is just—it's ridiculous. You pay your heir apparent slash H back slash tight end slash fullback slash special team, or you pay him a lot of money. That's Don't what you forget do with Taysom Hill. Steve Young 2.0. Steve Young 2.0. Remember, we just talked about Montana and Young on the podcast. We just discussed how they were. It uh, seemed ridiculous the first time I heard that, but the more you look into Steve Young's career, the less absurd that it actually sounds. Um, we'll listen to the pod if you haven't yet. And then the other one that sort of le- leapt out to me, though, I know this contravenes my rule. Like Chris Godwin is one yeah. of the best receivers in the NFL. He's earning like $2 million this season. Um, that's That left out is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot. 
of contracts where you're just, there's just not a whole lot of team friendly deals around the NFL every now and again, you know, like the, like Rob Gronkowski with the Patriots for a couple of years ago, if, if you're able to get that guy locked up a little bit early, um, they, they're probably in the underpaid category if they're a superstar. Um, I mean, Patrick Mahomes for a couple of years is going to be Patrick Mahomes now, because remember that now, deal is an extension. Right. So, right. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is still not earning a lot of money for that contract for a couple of seasons. Like, for a team that's committed half a billion dollars to their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes is still vastly underpaid for a while. Uh, Dak goes from, I don't think he's going to be overpaid, or he's necessarily overpaid, but he definitely goes from the best deal, probably, in the NFL, being on a fourth-round rookie contract, to yeah. the franchise tag. Yeah, so he's, he's going to have earned, flip. I think, $4 million for his career on that rookie deal, and he's going to earn 31.6, I think, this year guaranteed. So whatever that is, a multiplier in one year and be in a better position this time in a year, uh, this time a year from now, I think. Go to, um, let me, I've got a little spreadsheet I'm trying to pull up that's not coming up yet um, that may help out with some of the underpaid stuff. Go back to, go to some of the overpaid guys that you were jotting down so, that you were thinking about here. <laughs> The overpaid is it's usually quarterbacks as well um, because they're the most important player or important position in the NFL. But we've kind of hinted at this recently that, you know, in this world where they've suddenly become very abundant, um, you're, you know, you're not in danger anymore of missing out on viable just by uh, refusing to pay a guy a monster deal. So anybody that kind of did that and their quarterback isn't actually that great is looking at a fairly overpaid contract right now. So Jared Goff, I think, jumps out. You know, Jared Goff got one of those new money monster deals. His average is like $33.5 His average is is above Kirk Cousins. It's above Carson Wentz. Um, it's more than, you know, Dak's getting for one year on the franchise. It's higher than Matt Ryan's average. It's right up there with Aaron Rodgers. And we've seen now, like, he's in that – boat of when the situation around him deteriorates he deteriorates dramatically uh so i don't think you can say that golf is worth that contract similarly you know Derek carr signed a deal kind of like that a while ago in that category of i mean he's not going to elevate a guy in order for them to be worth those contracts the situation around them needs to be fantastic and it hasn't been for either guy so they're not worth it jacoby Brissett is still getting paid a ton of money this year um somehow and obviously he's a backup now. So that's sort of leapt out. The quarterbacks, I think, are the obvious ones. But in terms of like players, individual players that aren't quarterbacks, Frank Clark getting that deal from Kansas City oh, was kind of crazy. Everybody, dude, as soon as he had, he had two big sacks in the playoffs and everybody said, there it is. He's worth the money. Right. And um, CJ Mosley. Like, so the Frank Clark thing, but Frank Clark is getting almost as much money as Aaron Donald. Like, yeah, now, granted, Donald signed a longer deal, I think, but like the average per year, there's like $2 million in it. Yeah. Um, and then CJ Mosley signed that monster deal with the Jets, which was crazy on the face of it. And, the, and he hasn't actually played properly for them yet either. So that is another one that, that's just, yeah, that's, that's pretty ugly. So I'm trying, I'm trying to look through my, my handy spreadsheet here and I'm trying to compare just war against uh, cap percentage and salary and all that stuff. So the first players that come up in this very 
loose metric. It, it's actually percentage. I was, I was looking at like percentage of team war, like who had the highest. And I'm looking at non rookie contract guys, Steven Nelson, cornerback from the Steelers. And he's making over 10 million, made over 10 million last year. Um, he is up there as far as you had a, a valuable cornerback played really well, gave up only one touchdown last year. Um, first year of a free agent contract with the Steelers. He's up there in this, this rough metric. And then Carlos Dunlap, again, I'm looking, I was looking at just percentage of team war because the, the Bengals were so bad last year and Dunlap had such a good season. He was up there and, you know, he's in like year 10 or whatever in the NFL. Yeah. So he, you know, the fact that Dunlap, we've talked about him being an excellent run defender, one of the more underrated edges uh, across the league. Uh, those are two guys that stood out as being fairly valuable pieces who, um, aren't on rookie contracts right now, making over 10 million a year. Yeah. And Dunlap in particular is coming off a career year. So it'd be interesting to see if that holds true in a year's time. Uh, those are good ones though. Yeah. One other name to mention Micah Hyde. So again, if we're looking at guys that are adding value safety for the bills, that guy has been just fantastic since showing up in 2017, that bill's defense has been great. Micah Hyde uh, with uh, Jordan Poyer have quietly been one of the better, uh, safety duos in the league. So both guys showing up as well, especially Hyde showing up as a, as a valuable piece for not a lot of money. Let, let's just circle back to the Frank Clark thing. Cause a lot of fans, like, you know, fans are right. It's like, well, we won the super bowl. Of course it was worth it, but you could separate the process of what was paid for Frank Clark away from the results, right? Like Frank Clark was not the needle mover for the chiefs last year. Um, in fact, the pass rush went from first to 31st last year. Now, it also shows, you say this all the time, Sam, like it's, you can't just judge things based off of Super Bowls. You know, there's actually an argument to be made that the 2018 Chiefs were a better team than the, than the 2019 Chiefs, because I think the 2018 Chiefs were more explosive offensively. Their defense was certainly worse. They couldn't cover anybody. Um, but the 19 Chiefs, you know, they had bouts where they weren't nearly as good offensively. Um, and then the defense was good, you know, decent, not great. Um, but it's not like it was a massive difference between the teams. And the Chiefs were like a play or two away from being in the Super Bowl in 2018. And then if they beat the Rams, they're a Super Bowl champion, right? In 2019, last year, they were also a play or two away, a third and really long away from not winning the Super Bowl. And it took, you know, a great play by Patrick Mahomes and Tyree Kill to make that happen. So it's really a fine line. So it's not like you say, 2018 Chiefs, failure. 2019 Chiefs, success. Super Bowl. What was the difference? Well, yeah, they lost D4. They added Frank Clark. Boom. There is the difference. Like, it's it's not that clean. Frank Clark's still probably making a little bit too much money for a guy that's a, a good run defender, a pretty good pass rusher, and actually wasn't great last year. Yeah, agreed. Um, what other questions did you like? I thought we had a few good ones in here. Um. Is this the two quarterback package and then the Jason Peters to let's discuss Jason Peters going to right guard. Is that a good move for yeah. the Eagles? I think, I mean, I think it is. I, it's, I'm going to lean. It's a good move, but like, let's discuss the risks here. Jason Peters has been playing left tackle for about 15 years now. Right. Mm -hmm. We saw Donald Penn a couple of years ago as like an eight or 10 year left tackle moved to right tackle and struggled quite a bit. Now guard. Also guard like is immediately hurt himself, right? 
He, yeah, I mean, yeah, he did. You're right. He, he had something. It was like all your movements are way off and stuff like that. And I, we hear offensive linemen talk about this all the time. It's tough to move sides and all that stuff. I think offensive linemen, I think it's overblown a little bit when you say guys can't flip sides. It, it happens all the time. Got you know, right tackles in, uh, in the NFL. Most of them played left tackle in college and they just transitioned. But I think after a while, there's definitely a point of diminishing returns, like 15 plus years in the NFL at left tackle and then moving to the right side. That's different. That's different because most of these guys, they did it in college and a lot of them play right tackle as sophomores and juniors and they flip to the left side and then they go back to the right in the NFL. That happens all the time. But it's like one year here, one year there, two years there, 15 years, 10 years. That is a challenge. So it's going to be a challenge. But I think the alternative is who's the next right guard? Because even the guys on the roster would all have to make similar moves. Jack Driscoll is a pass blocking, kind of a softer tackle. You don't want to put, play him at guard. Uh, Tega Winogo, another tackle coming in from Auburn, like not really guard fits. So I think as far as the alternative goes, maybe Peters is the best option. What do you think? Yeah, <clears throat> I think the only thing would be, it would be interesting to see if there is any kind of legit you know, biomechanical concern about a guy that's been doing like one specific movement for 15 years and then almost reverse it and change it. Like, I, you know, there were people that blamed flipping sides for Donald Penn basically immediately tearing something, right? Your body just yeah. fundamentally shifts what it's trying to do and it just can't deal with that at a certain age and it collapsed on him. I, I honestly have no idea if that's true or not. I have, you know, that's a, a medical question way beyond my capabilities i i don't know if that's a real concern then i don't know how you like condition him for that in the space of a few weeks before the season is supposed to hit like that's just and this is a guy that's already been you know relatively fragile in recent years in terms of his body breaking down anyway like if that's a genuine risk then that almost doesn't feel like it's going to end well um if it isn't, if it's just a case of like, this is a dude that's been doing something for 15 years and just needs to work at it. I mean, he's so good at being a left tackle that even with that in mind, his baseline for where he should be as a right guard should be reasonably high. Like if it's just a case of him having to get used to it and, and play there, then I would say the chance of him being better than any other option they have, at least in-house is really high. Uh, you know, I think that that way it's, it's a definite upgrade for them. And I don't see a tremendous amount of players that could have signed for the same kind of money, you know, and in, in, uh, available in free agency that would have been similar uh, options. So, yeah, I think assuming the sort of the actual medical thing isn't a factor, then I think it's a good move. I, I think, I think offensive line is such a fascinating position because I'll, I'll compare it to pitching in a minute, but there's like, there's really so few positions in sports where you really only do a handful of things and that's it. Like, that's your job. You only master a handful of things. So like an offensive lineman, a left tackle, he has to pass set a couple different ways. He has to run block a couple different ways, you know, double team, second level and stuff like that. But there's not like a ton. If you just put them into buckets, the things you need to master, there's not a lot of them. Um, as a pitcher, I used to always say this because I'd say the mounds never moves, the plate never moves, and all I'm doing is throwing three pitches to a few different spots. Like, why can't I just master this, like, nine things? Because nothing changes. Like, I'm not going to do anything different. Um, quarterback's different, right, because they have to throw the ball differently almost every time they throw it, right? There's different types of throws and touch and all these different things. 
there's guys running around all over you. But an offensive lineman, you're just like, get your pass set, pass set, pass set. And then, you know, run blocking has a few different variations. I just find that interesting from a positional standpoint because it's like mastering this handful of movements as a lineman. But now you have to do it from the other side and from the interior. Um, and it and after 15 years of reps, yeah, I think it could be a challenge. It, it's a much more unique spot, I think, than other spots on the field where you have a, a wider variety of, of things you're asked to do. There's probably also a value to Jason Peters being so familiar with the system there. Yeah, you know, sure. whatever about needing to switch to a different position, given the alternative options. Again, young guys that we don't know if they can necessarily hand, handle the mental uh, aspect of the NFL and <clears throat> guys coming in from the outside who just aren't in, you know, intimately familiar with that system. Everybody else that they could have given that shot to would have been less uh, mentally ready for it, I think, than Jason Peters. So again, it's just a case of what it does to him physically, and assuming that that biomechanical aspect of it isn't a factor, and then I think it's it's got to be a good move for them. All right, so that was Kerry Goosby Robinson who asked that Great question. Name. Is that right? And then yeah, uh, that's Josh Cataldo. What his Twitter name was? It is uh, Josh Cataldo, assuming his Twitter name, asks about mm-hmm. the two quarterback package. Can it be a widespread strategy? in the NFL. Yeah. So I, I think rules would probably need to change in order for you to have a legitimate sort of two quarterbacks on the field strategy. Either rules would need to change. You know, the XFL was playing with this right before they collapsed this idea of you could have two forward passes as long as they're both behind the line of scrimmage, something like that. So something like that I think would need to come in for there to be a, like a genuinely viable two quarterback on the field type of strategy. I, I think things might change a little bit if you had, um, you know, if you had uh, quarterbacks that were sufficiently good at other positions that you can almost, you, you create that sort of slash Cordell Stewart type of role, you know, if they're, part-time wide receiver, part-time quarterback, part-time quarterback running back, part-time quarterback tight end, whatever it is, in addition to your sort of starting quarterback, you know, the Taysom Hill thing, right? If you actually embraced the Taysom Hill element of your offense and found a way to coordinate it with, without just sort of saying every time you're in, Drew Brees moves over to the sideline and it's like a waste, right? If you actually figured out a coordinated way of using the two of them more, I think there's something in it. The other um, interesting aspect to me, though, is is this idea of using two quarterbacks more uh, uh, one at a time, sequentially, not at the same time, right? So, again, this is doing that Montana Young. Oh, you're going episode. in. You got the red zone quarterback and everything. Is that what you want? Right. So, you know, again, it, it pulled out this way that Bill Walsh just did this differently right he treated quarterbacks differently he didn't buy into all this crap that you know i've been preaching for years this idea of (laughs) there is something to the mental aspect of this right that there needs to be this sort of defined hierarchy of quarterbacks otherwise things start to go to hell but even like he had a way of transitioning these guys in where everybody knew that you know he he liked the joe montana to begin with right even though montana was what a third round pick And it's not like he was anointed from day one. It's like, all right, I like this guy. I think he can be the starter down the line. But rather than just like throw him out there one day and say, it's your job now, I'm going to start easing him in and I'm going to give him good situations to do that. And now that's become like mop up duty, right? If you, you're, 
winning in a blowout. You've got a quarterback you kind of like. Let's throw him out there for a few uh, series and see if he doesn't crap himself. But Montana or Bill Walsh would be like, well, instead of that, let's throw him in there in the red zone, right? It's like we've already we've already done a good job. We've done the hard part, which is getting the ball to the twenty yard line. Now we're in a really good position. Almost no matter what happens, we're coming away with points, right? Even if he doesn't go anywhere, we got a field goal. We're in good shape. So we'll give this guy a good situation to succeed in. And that's how they sort of transitioned into Montana. And they were almost doing the same thing with Steve Young for a period. They were giving him these sort of situations to come in and, and look good. I, I mean, we've seen that a little bit since then. You know, the Cardinals tried it with Matt Leinart. You know, they had Kurt Warner as like the between the 20s quarterback and then Matt Leinart would come in. Uh, no, it was the other way around, actually. They had... Liner was the between the twenties guy, and then Kurt Warner would come in for the red zone just in case Liner screwed it up. Um, but I think there might be something to that that like there are quarterbacks that might actually have different skill sets, and particularly again in this world of like if you don't have a Mahomes, right? If you're stuck rotating through guys that are viable but not great, like maybe they do have different strengths, and you're better off actually putting them in in different situations. Yeah, I mean, my thing with it is going back to what we keep saying about the state of the NFL right now and the ability to find an Andy Dalton. I, I think the the challenge with the two-quarterback system is you would have to know that it's better than your starting quarterback. And, you know, next week I'm putting out quarterback tier rankings, right? We're not going to do one through 32. We'll just put tiers one through four. And Coward. Yes. Uh, the, number, <laughs> the number of quarterbacks in the first three tiers – I think my first go around was like 22, 23. Like there's 22 or 23 teams that have the ability to have, say, a top 10 passing offense because they have a, a quarterback in the top three tiers. That's how I'll describe it. And then the quarterbacks in tier four are in year one or year two or somewhat developmental or like on the cusp of maybe their, their time is over like Trubisky was last year. So most of the NFL is in good shape. I think you would need to have a tier four quarterback situation and yeah. obviously have two quarterbacks who are viable. The red zone component I do find interesting because teams are way more, uh, they're using quarterbacks in the running game way more than they used to. So like if, say when Dak, say, say Tony Romo was good and healthy in 2016, and him and, and Dak is, even though Dak doesn't practice well, Dak is looking impressive in practice. That could have been a situation where Romo was the guy, and you think it's kind of his last year, and Dak ended up becoming the red zone threat, and you tapped into his rushing potential. But again, you would put Dak's rushing potential oh, in passing potential against Tony Romo, who's just a really good passer. In, in the red zone, too, where you need to actually be a good passer into tight windows and make good decisions and all that stuff. So um, that's the only thing. It, it gets It's easier to run the ball in between the 20s because, as we keep saying, you just dictate it by box. You just spread the field and all that stuff. As things get tighter, it's easier to bring guys into the box without sacrificing coverage, so it's harder to run the ball in the red zone. Because of that, you can win the numbers matchup with a rushing quarterback. That is where I do think that two-quarterback package might work two quarterbacks on the field at the same time I don't know I here's my last thought on it right the Mark Sanchez Colts uh Jets sorry the Mark Sanchez Jets all the time they would run the wildcat and everybody would talk about oh, they need the wildcat to change things up and it was just this creative way to you know rush for three or four yards per carry and 
like once a year they would pass off of it and throw like a nine yard curl. It was like all of the time that they spent practicing the wildcat package when Mark Sanchez and his receivers needed the practice time, right? Like they needed that component of their team to get better, to even have a chance to win football games. So that's what I think people always say, well, the defense has to prepare for it, but the offense has to practice it too. Like you have to master this as part of your offense. So you're wasting practice time too. Now, if you have Drew Brees at quarterback, you don't need as much practice time, but presumably if you have a, a bad quarterback situation, you're doing this, you're taking away practice time from a quarterback and receiving core that probably needs reps where the payoff there is probably greater than say having that second quarterback in there. The other way you could potentially use a two quarterback system is I wonder if there, again, this isn't, this is only if your quarterback situation isn't good, but like, is there a world where some quarterback, one of your quarterbacks is better suited to a different, to a certain defense that you're going to face in another, you know? So Trubisky versus Foles might be a good example of this, right? Maybe neither guy is, is particularly good next year. But given how much more of a threat Trubisky is with his legs, are there certain defenses that you're going to start Trubisky over Foles, even though in abstract terms, it's basically a coin flip? Um, like you might say, all right, Trubisky's threat to run the ball is way more effective against man-heavy teams. So when we play the Lions, yeah. we're going to start Trubisky. When we play the Vikings, we're going to start Foles. Um, all other things being equal. So again, I, I, I wonder if there's, there's potential given the way the NFL landscape is now where you can get multiple quarterbacks and don't pay them this, you know, don't pay them Jared Goff, Derek Carr contracts and instead get multiple of these guys together and find more creative ways of using them all as opposed to just saying that, we're stuck with this one guy. That, that would be interesting. That I could buy into. And that, but that would be like, here's, here's the other thing, right? You can't go into the off season with that as your plan. Like if you go into the off season and you're like, man, here's what we're going to do next year. I'm, I'm rolling it back with Trubisky. I'm bringing Foles in and this is the path to the NFC North championship. However, if the off season doesn't go as planned and you're going into the season and it's like, well, I have Trubisky and Foles. What's the best way to maximize these guys? then maybe it's a viable option. I, I think that perspective is important. You can't just say, oh, we're just going to try this completely new thing when there's like a better strategy on the table, which is, you know, go find a good quarterback if he's available. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think that strategy would ever keep you away from, you know, if, you, if Patrick Mahomes falls into your lap, we're not passing on it. Like, I got my two QB know. system, thanks. Right, but I think, there, I think there could be a world where that becomes a viable strategy to winning games. You know, and then if you do manage to luck into one of these transcendent guys, like that trumps everything, right? Like even if even if it's not the two quarterback system, like if you've got Kirk Cousins and somehow you wind up in a situation where you've got a guy you believe is Patrick Mahomes available, like Kirk Cousins shouldn't be stopping you from taking that guy. So yeah. certainly a, a multiple quarterback stable shouldn't be either. Like nothing what? should stop you from taking that guy, including having that guy already. Like if you yeah. already, you know, if you had Aaron Rodgers in 2014 and suddenly Patrick Mahomes is available, the right move would be to take him and figure out how to flip one of them for a monster haul. Yeah, like, for sure. No, literally nothing should take you from taking a transcendent quarterback talent. I would say the, um, the one other interesting thing that we can't do analytics on that I would be interested if teams have a feel for this, that we, that we just can't, we don't have a feel. Do quarterbacks or players who practice well during the week, does that actually translate to the game? 
And once again, one more baseball comparison, last one for the show. You know, before you go into a game, you warm up, right? You throw in the bullpen, you warm up for 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And sometimes you feel great, and then you feel terrible in a game. Sometimes the opposite happens. There's, there's very little connection between how you feel going into the game and what you actually do. I imagine football is the same way, but I think football coaches really believe in having a good practice, right? I, how you feel, coach? Oh, we had a great week of practice, right? But sometimes you have a bad week of practice and you play well. It's just, I think that's just the nature of sports in general. But if teams actually did have research on this and it was like, you know what? The quarterback who does actually play better or when he does play better and have good reps on Wednesday, Thursday is actually better that week. And then it'd be like, all right, we're going 50, 50 Foles, Trubisky, whoever's playing better at practice is going to, is going to go. Um, but I, I honestly don't think that that would be, I don't think that's real, I, but it would be interesting if teams have better or more information and they believe it. Ah, if we practice well, we're going to be good. Cause I think coaches, coaches believe it, whether the numbers say it or not. And that's, you know, that's what I coaches wonder do. How much they even believe it and how much it's like, that's the only way of getting them to practice. It could, well, <laughs> it could be coach speak. It could be coach speak. Well, it's like, look, if I say practice doesn't matter for shit, like, how do I expect them to take it seriously? And I need them to take it seriously because I need to get these things done. Like, you know, there's a degree to which they need to say that just in order to get everyone to True. practice. Master motivators. Uh, so uh, who uh, we had a question about 80-man rosters and other COVID impacts. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think it's probably we've probably reached the point where we should explore this a little bit anyway. So one of the things, you know, the – NFL and the NFLPA are busy hammering out how the hell this is all going to work. Um, and obviously the, the original sort of plan of let's stick to the regular schedule, maybe drop a couple of preseason games like that's gone to hell. But one of the things that's come out or one of the things that seems to have been agreed is this drop from 90 man to 80 man rosters. Cause we're not, you know, it's not a full massive training camp. It's not for preseason games. You don't need the extra 10 guys. Right. Um, and you know, one person I think was asking, in particular in regard to the Vikings, because they timed like this year, they assemble like 128 draft picks right and then, right at the time where they're cutting down rosters by 10 guys. So, yep. but generally, you know, this is, there's a lot of discussion as to what is this going to do for the, the roster bubble guys, those guys at the bottom end, you know, even just those 10 guys across the league is obviously 320 guys that don't have a shot anymore. Um, so what are your yeah. thoughts on the whole roster cut down thing? I don't, I don't think you're going to see a difference in like the quality of rosters. I don't think teams are going to have trouble getting to their final 53. Um, because again, from the, from the grand scheme of things, if, if one really good undrafted free agent, uh, who's the best undrafted free agent, you know, if, if John Randall doesn't show up, who'd you say? Chris Harris, Chris Harris. I mean, okay. That would have an impact. I mean, if you, if you were missing out on like a future hall of famer, undrafted free agent that never would have had a shot. Yeah it would have an impact, but I think overall, I don't think fans or teams are going to see the impact, the impacts with those players. Um, I mean, it's, I I feel for those, those guys are, they're fringe players who just want an opportunity. And of the 300 something players who don't have a shot now, maybe only five or eight would actually make the roster, but the other 300 would be, Hey, I was in camp. I got, you know, it's, it's, it's the light, it's their life experience. It's their one opportunity. They don't have to lie to their kids. 15 years from now and say, Oh, you know, I, you know, I had a, I had a shot and I just didn't make it. I mean, they're, they're going to say, Oh no, I got screwed. You know, I didn't even get an opportunity. I could have been a uh, hall of famer. Um, I, I feel more for the players than, than anything. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the thing is, so a couple of points. The first one is that I don't know how many guys are making rosters anymore based off those preseason games. It certainly used to be the case that, you know, yeah. you could go on a run and, you know, be incredible in preseason. This guy makes the roster and he's a, he's the undrafted free agent story. But like particularly the fourth game now, like so, you know, preseason has become less and less relevant and the fourth preseason game is the one that's been like a complete joke because you get guys every year now where they have this incredible week four, this incredible final week of the preseason. And then next morning they're cut. Like clearly that decision is made at this point before that game. So yeah, that, that game in particular is like a total waste of time. Get rid of that immediately and never bring it back. But you they can, say those guys, they're playing for the other 31 teams though. Because the guys who get cut, it's generally set in stone because of it because it's a numbers game. Like you're a great edge rusher. Hey, we've already got our five guys that we're carrying. Sorry, you're out. But another team might need that position, and then you're, it's your showcase game. Yeah, but like those guys are already on roster, so it's not like they're unknown quantities. Like okay, it's tape that you didn't have before, but reducing their ability to put that on tape is not. I don't think is changing things dramatically. It might change the chance you get picked up by this next team specifically because you did that but like it's not you, you know you already had the shot is what i'm saying like if you haven't convinced this team that you're worth a shot you're probably not convincing the next one in True. in abstract terms like you've already had your ability to, to make this happen you're probably going to be on the radar to get picked up down the line if a team needs a receiver or a running back or a linebacker or whatever so that fourth game i think you can just get rid of permanently and never darken our doorstep again um, the other thing is like, we're still going to have some form of camp. So I think there's still going to be room for guys that like generally the guys that the undrafted free agents, that stick are the ones where you get them in the building and immediately you're like, Oh, we just, this was wrong. Like yeah. we and just they can compete on the analysis. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you see them okay, compete you, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to fight for reps. You're not getting anything at the start, but you're going to see that, right. If you just goofed in the anal on the eval, and you get a guy in the building and you immediately see that he's just different to what you thought he was, that shows up, right? You're going to notice that pretty quickly. So I think there's still room for undrafted free agent guys to hit rosters and all that kind of thing. The thing that intrigues the, – so the last point and the reason that this, this is sort of weird is I, I think for the guys that you're talking about, the, the 320 people that don't even get a shot, like they're still going to get a chance because this season more than ever – we're going to be going into the bench, right? Like guys are going to start dropping like flies with COVID. You're going to, you're going to cycle through people that weren't anywhere near your roster at some point this season. This is going to be way more than a 53 man game for every franchise over the course of however long this season lasts. Like let's assume for the moment that it goes the full 17 weeks, we are going to be signing people off the street late in December. And you're going to be going to those 320 guys that you, would have had in training camp where you would have had in your preseason team, they're going to be getting some phone calls. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think the other thing I'm thinking about too, is just the decisions that the NFLPA is making, right? They have, they have, for, they have pushed this, let's not play any preseason games, right. For safety purposes and all that stuff. But that is certainly a top heavy view that is being pushed yeah. by the team reps who are all going to be on teams they're all starters generally. Right. And it's all guys that are like, Oh, I just don't, you know, they are actually kind of screwing the guys at the bottom end of the roster who do need those preseason games to at least do something like zero also, preseason games is trouble. Um, a lot of times guys make an impression in the first preseason, forget four, 
the first preseason game has been, I think, even more of a showcase game because, uh, you know, you don't have rosters set around the league. Right. That's and the one where you it's, can change the depth chart. Yeah. Like early in the preseason, you make an impression and you either have a shot with your current team or, you know, seven teams across the league are keeping an eye on you when preseason week four is the Thursday before is two days before they have to finalize rosters. And it's not like, oh, this guy stood out preseason week four. So I think week one is the big one. So not having any preseason games for these guys to stand out, I think it's just a top-heavy view from the NFLPA. I'm not saying it's wrong. I understand the health implications and all that stuff. I'm just saying the trickle-down effect is massive because the lifespan in the NFL is two or three years even when you make it, and now half the league is kind of like screwed here because they need these preseason games to try to make a roster. The other thing, though, that struck me as strange is – Again, because like you're going to be going to the bench. You're this year. I think more than any year, you're going to need expanded rosters, not diminished rosters. Like, if anything, does it not seem like we should be going the other way? Like, instead of yes. <clears throat> instead of moving the first number from ninety to eighty, let's move fifty three up to seventy five, and say mm-hmm. you know you now have like a built in COVID contingency in here. You've got fifteen guys that are actually familiar with what the hell you're trying to do and can be called upon if you need to. Honestly, the XFL, what do they call it? It was team nine. They had eight teams and it was a team nine that they had as like the, it was like the free agents all practice together or whatever it was. Right. Is that how they did it? Quick break to tell you about our friends over at bet online. There is no shortage of action going on with our exclusive partners, bet online sports are slowly making its way back with the UFC boxing, NASCAR and soccer leading the way. BetOnline has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming games and matches. Make sure to stay tuned to the end of this podcast as sports analyst and host of Good Sports, Dave Damashek, discusses the welcome return of sports with BetOnline's Dave Mason. Need more? BetOnline has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening every day live for you to check out. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline also has hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. Visit Bet Online or use your mobile device and join now to receive your new welcome bonus and start playing today. Bet Online, your online wagering experts. Like having a uh, hashtag 33rd front office, having Team 33 in a year like this, I mean, yes, it's taking a whole bunch of dudes and putting them in a place together, but yeah. it, can, it can be like the Team 33 bubble. Like, hey, guys, if you want a shot to be one of the guys called upon in the NFL, you go to the Team 33 bubble, and you practice there. And what they could do is kind of have regular practices, regular scrimmages throughout the year, have them feed to all 32 NFL teams, have like an extra film you know, film to watch or whatever. Mm. And here's like 150 guys or however many guys that are just playing and practicing. And, they're, and you can only be a part of it if you want to be. Be away from your family, whatever it is. I think that would have been a good like on the fly. Let's go call up the NFL. Where's uh, – J.C. Treader, I can make some make some changes here to get some other players involved. They get a nice little You're practice pro- squad stipend. Yeah. You're only, yeah, that's so that's your only problem with that one, right? Is who's how do you pay these it. guys? Yeah, I mean, I do think though that like you know the the approach has been okay. We're losing preseason. We're shrinking training camp. So let's shrink down the rosters. I think actually the approach should be look if this is a season where you need expanded rosters somehow, whether it's every team gets to carry more practice squad guys, whether it's you actually increase the game day roster by 15 for every team, whether it's your plan that we just create a whole 33rd team and bubble and just have these guys sitting around waiting. 
like there's no way we are making it through the season without having to go deep into the bench. So shrinking down rosters is heading in the opposite direction of that. Uh, we have a question from our YouTubers here about the the impact of an open quarterback competition on the rest of a team. And this is the the debate you and I have had quite a bit where you discuss about how, you know, players like to rally around a guy and the quarterbacks maybe can't handle the mental component of the competition or whatever it might be. Um, and I'm always of the mind, like, let's treat these players who are very much human and have emotion. Let's treat them more like robots. Um, and I don't really, th- here's my take on it is more this, right? I think there's a difference between what players feel and then what happens on the, what actually matters and happens on the field, right? This happens in sports all the time. We talked about the offensive lineman earlier. Is it challenging to move from left tackle to right tackle as a young player? Yes, it is. Does it affect performance? More often than not, it does not, right? So that matters more than the feeling and the discomfort and the reps that you need to feel comfortable. Like that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because we're looking for results. I imagine that every football player, it's ingrained, oh man, I need a quarterback to rally behind. If you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Like all these cliches are out there. But does it actually matter how your cornerback plays or how your left tackle plays or how your receivers play? Probably not. Ultimately, they want what's best for the team or they'll just they'll play at the same level and you have to make the, the best decisions for the team. And I don't think it's as big of a deal. We deal with this with, um, with old linemen all the time, right? Every old lineman's like, oh, you don't think establishing the run matters? How about all those times that I was killing a dude and he quit in the fourth quarter and it, like this like specific example from like week seven of their junior year in high school or whatever. And it's like, well, it doesn't, it just doesn't happen at the NFL level. You right. don't wear down the team and own them in the NFL like you think you do. So it doesn't, it doesn't exist, even though you think it does. I don't care what you think. So that's how, that's how I would attack the open quarterback competition. But I would do it much smoother yeah. if I was a general manager. I think the example of that is this idea that it matters who the running back in the backfield is for play yeah. action and that kind of thing, right? Like right. every defensive player will swear blind that the difference between Adrian Peterson back there and – the other Adrian Peterson back there is significant, right? That that knowing that AP or AD is back there changes the way they play, but there's no, it never shows up. There's no statistical or fundamental evidence that that happens. At which point, if you can't see it, does it like what goes on in your head doesn't matter. Like you might think that you're playing it differently, but in no way does that show up. It doesn't, if you can't measure it, it didn't happen. Like, then it's like so third think, and eight with Moelde Moore back there and everybody's, and they randomly right. run play action. Everybody's taking four steps at him. It's like Moelde Moore versus Adrian Peterson, you know, there's <laughs> third and eight. Like I shouldn't be playing the run on third and eight, but they're still biting on it. So now that we're getting through this, what other impacts do you think this whole COVID thing is going to happen or is going to have on this season? So I think I go back to 2011, right? So 2011, Let's start with the idea that both of us think it's going to happen, right? Both of us think right now an NFL season is happening. Yeah, I think a season. I think a season's happening. I think you know baseball is about to start. Um, They're not in a bubble. Um, The NBA is in a bubble, so they don't have any uh, cases, which you know is expected. Um, But I think baseball is going to make it happen and have games. I think the NFL is going to make it happen and have games. The only reason why college football won't is because they're not professionals and it's very difficult right. to make non-professionals, even though they're making billions of dollars, go yeah. and play football. Um, so I think it'll happen. 
I go back to 2011. There was the long holdout period. There was less training camp. They had just signed the new CBA where teams weren't tackling as much. There was you know fewer padded practices. And we had one of the biggest passing seasons of all time. And I'd, I think going into that, you would have said, okay, who needs the practice time more? You probably would have said the offense. I mean, as intricate as NFL offenses are, it's like, I always think back to Peyton throwing the deep comebacks to Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harrison. Just incredible, right? Like the precision where Wayne is going to stick his foot at 18 and Peyton's going to throw it at 15 at the perfect angle, all that stuff. Such precision from NFL offenses. But kind of the opposite happened in 2011 where defenses gave up a ton. There were were busted coverages. They couldn't tackle. And offenses actually had the advantage. I think this year, I think that's probably the case. Tackling is going to be ugly. It's probably an ugly brand of football. And of course, the teams that are together have familiarity. Mahomes and the Chiefs, Breeze and the Saints should have the advantage. This Brady to the Bucks story, you know, multiply this by 10, they'll have fewer reps. It would have been difficult enough getting those guys on the same page. New system, Brady with a new system for the first time in 21 years, all that stuff. But now, like, less practice time, fewer padded practices, no game reps. I think you're just going to see the teams that have continuity in the past game look better. And I think defenses, if it looks like 2011, they're they're at a disadvantage. The other thing I think that might happen is – you know, the, this idea of rookie quarterbacks never sit for a particularly long time. It's usually the plan, but then they get thrown out there. But given that their entire prep period is about to get blown up, I think we might see some of these guys sit for longer than we're expecting. So Tua was already dealing with the idea of how healthy is he coming back from this hip thing. He might have been a case of sitting for a while anyway. Fitzpatrick also is a pretty good quarterback. at sort of holding off somebody uh, coming for his job. But again, with, with two going to be behind the eight ball because of this COVID thing, I could see him not making it onto the field for a while. And then the other one I think that would be more surprising is I think Tyrod Taylor could keep Justin Herbert on, on the bench for a while. Um, Herbert is a quarterback that is not without his flaws that need to be you know changed or improved upon or fixed heading into the NFL anyway. But I'm starting to get really intrigued with what this Tyrod Taylor chargers offense could look like um because you know if you so taylor's not lamar jackson right nobody is because lamar is a unique freaky right. athlete one of the best athletes at the position the game has ever seen if not the best tyrod taylor isn't that but he's a really good athlete like i think we probably un- undersell or people have forgotten how absurd an athlete he is he's like 95th percentile or better in like everything, right? 40 yard dash, 10 yard split, shuttle, three cone, vertical. You got PFF IQ? Checking that out? I have been. I'm not right nice. now, but that's where I got it from. So, Thank like you. 95th percentile or better in all of those athletic measurables, right? He is a, and not, not 95th for quarterbacks, 95th period, right? Like, so he's a top tier athlete, whatever way you're looking at it. And that enables you to do a lot of Lamar Jackson esque things. So if you go back to what the Buffalo Bills were doing while he was there, and perhaps more importantly, while Greg Roman and Anthony Lynn were there, they were doing a lot of Lamar Jackson type run concepts and option stuff and, you know, really complex plays that A, caused defenses real problems, as we're seeing with Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, and B, give Tyra Taylor the ball in space in a way that he can do real damage with it. Um like the Bills were doing that for a few years and people got fed up with it because 
all they wanted to see was him airing the ball out and, you know, making some big plays in the, in the fourth quarter. Uh, and it didn't happen. So people got fed up with Tyra Taylor being a starting quarterback and went looking for a Josh Allen. But like Anthony Lynn was there. He saw that happen. Tyra Taylor is now reunited with him and the league has just seen Baltimore and Lamar Jackson sort of do this, commit to this heavily. I like, I think there's a real chance that he does pretty well in that offense, that that offense generally is really effective if they lean into this kind of play. And I think the other thing is, you know, remembering that Tyra Taylor is probably a better quarterback than most people think he is. You know, everyone, we certainly remember the horrific Browns stretch, but before that he was a consistently pretty good quarterback for like three straight years. Do you think that is their response to the chiefs? You know, which was, okay, we're going to add Chris Harris. We got Desmond King, Casey Hayward. We got Derwin. We got Adderley. You know, we have to, we have to build through the secondary to stop our Kansas, you know, our division leader, Kansas city Chiefs, Super Bowl champs and saying, well, we can't, we can't keep up with them from a firepower standpoint. Right. We'll never be able to pass with them. We're going to go Tyrod. I, it could be. But at the same time, they also dra- drafted Justin Herbert at six overall. So that's, that's either saying we don't thing. completely buy into Tyrod or were they like, we're getting to a, we're getting to a, we're getting to a, oh, Herbert's here. We still kind of need to look to the future for a quarterback. He's worth a shot. Let's do that. But for this year, we're in the, the Tyrod ball control plan. That would be a really interesting thing to talk to you know, people in the Chargers and figure out exactly what their whole thought process was for that entire period, right? Where, how many different plans did they cycle through or was it always this way? Um, I think had they taken a defensive player, I think this would have been like the full commit to this strategy, right? That the best way of slowing, the best way of dealing with Mahomes is to try and get as good a defense as humanly possible and then have a different style of offense, right? Because we're not like... I, I think there is something to this idea that trying to get into a shootout with the Chiefs is a bad plan, right? We saw that with the Texans. The Texans are a similar build of team to the Chiefs, but they're worse at it. So even though they got up 24 points, whatever it was, Mahomes just let rip and you couldn't live with it. Um, I do think that you can combat that offense by by just keeping it off the field. So even if it's not a run-heavy attack if it's like a if it's an offense that doesn't try and score quickly even if it does it through the air if they try and kill you with a thousand paper cuts and every single drive is going to take 10 minutes and 15 plays and chew up a whole bunch of clock i i think there's something to the psychology that a keeping them on the keeping them a homes on the sideline for that length of time frustrates them but b if you then just get one stop and suddenly you've not just kept them on the sideline for like 10 minutes He's been sitting there for like a whole half. That, I think, really starts to frustrate them because now they know that we actually need to score now because if we don't, we're not going to get the ball to the fourth quarter and we've got some major problems. I think that really does have a, a marked effect on psychology, and this is the offense to do that. The pro- so the problem with that strategy, I would say, is I can think of off the top of my head a bunch of times where it actually worked, right? Last year against the Chiefs, the Colts did a really nice job of that converted two fourth downs, I think, on a drive, beat them 16 to 10, kept the Chiefs off the field relatively. But, I mean, when you say keep them off the field, it's really like you lose, like, a possession or two. Um, but yeah. it also is – it is like what I always joke about with the but Seahawks. Time. With time, yeah, but I mean, the Chiefs are the 
the quickest strike offense in the league. Maybe they that's do, why maybe they do. reducing that's why reducing the time is important, right? The problem with that Houston game is that they were up twenty four, but no time was gone off the clock. There were quirky so the Chiefs still had all day. The Chiefs right. still had all day to just score because you know right. that eventually they're going to get it going and it's going to take thirty but, seconds and you're that's seven. If if you do that, but instead of like instead of ten minutes off the clock, you're into the fourth quarter now. That's a whole different ball game. The the mid two thousand Jaguars used to do that a lot with uh, using David Garrard again, but they used to do that with Garrard, uh, Jones, Drew, and Fred Taylor to to slow down Peyton and the Colts, and they used to have a ton of like fifteen eighteen play drives, and they won a few games against the Colts within the the, the division doing that, but I think also there were times where it just didn't work. So I mean it's it's not my point is it's not like. Like I can remember the times where that strategy worked great and it feels good. And it's like, wow, look at that well-executed strategy. But it also probably works as often as other strategies like, hey, going head to head with them in a pass game. If they were trying to win, look, they had the pieces this offseason to say they're one big play receiver away from maybe having the most complete receiving core in the league, being right up there with the Bills and the Cowboys. Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, if they added a Deshaun Jackson, as we said the other day, or some other speed receiver, uh, they went three deeper receiver, plus having Hunter Henry, a top five receiving tight end. And they added a guy that would keep up in a shootout like a Jameis or a Cam Newton this offseason. That would have been a viable way to go. But I think to your point, they didn't go that way. They did go the Tyrod way. So maybe this is the plan. I, I, it is one of the many storylines I'm, I'm looking forward to see if they do change their offense for Tyrod. So I, I think... I think it's a better way of doing it than trying to be a worse version of replicating what they're trying to get in the shootout with them and winning. Right. It's, it's not kryptonite for that. Like, yeah, it's, there's going to be times where it doesn't work, but that's because you're worse than they are. Like <laughs> there's no way of, there's no, there's no system you can run where you beat the best quarterback in the NFL more often than you lose to him. Like whatever you're doing, you're the underdog. So the question is, which, which gives us a better shot of pulling an upset. And to me, you have a way better shot of pulling an upset against them by doing this style of offense than you do of trying to go toe-to-toe with them and hoping you get lucky. So I think that is the way of doing that. The question is, how much was this a like designed plan and how much of this is just like, screw it, we, you know, we, we didn't get to a – we got Herbert. He's probably not ready to start. We're going to have to roll with something with Tyrod. God right. knows he's not capable of running a – you know, Mahomes style offense. So this is what we're, this is what we're left with. And as it happens, it might be useful. I mean, if they're, if they have actually committed to that style of offense, I think it could actually be an intriguing way to go for that team. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think that would, it certainly is a viable option. Um, Other COVID impacts. I think the rookies, um, I think, I think you see this in college football a lot. You see a lot of true freshmen when they get, they get onto campus late there's a lot of true freshmen who don't start contributing until like week six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it is. I think we might see more of that from rookies this year where they just don't hit the ground running. Um, so there, there's going to be a team that's like six and two and all of a sudden they, they get, it's like, they get like a free player, like a rookie's just going to emerge and have like this really good second half because I think their learning curve is, is just going to be uh, probably pushed into more of the second half of the season. On the other hand, maybe rookies don't hit the rookie wall as much. You can count yeah. on them more in the second half rather than the first half. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff. There's the no fan component that we've discussed before. Do you lose home field advantage by not having the crowd noise and all that? I mean, those they're are the still things. Clinging that, onto that, the fan thing. I, yeah, but they're, it's, they're even, fighting that hard. But 
honestly, I don't, I don't think having 25 or 50% capacity of like socially distanced fans is that bad. I think it'd be worse in domes. I, I do think the outdoor indoor component would be one thing. I mean, I'm not, I don't know the science exactly on it, but I imagine indoors, it's a lot easier to uh, have, contract uh, through the air. We have breaking news right now. Oh, great. Let's break some news. The, uh, the renamed Washington football team is interim name is going to be Washington football team. That's what they're going to roll with for this year until they figure out what they're calling themselves. WFT. WFT. I was really liking the Washington TBDs. That was actually growing on me as a, as like a real name. I think we could have I think we could have gone with that for a whole season and not suffered for it. They're really going Washington football team. Uh per yeah, per Adam Schefter, Washington's NFL franchise will call itself the Washington football team as it de- decides on its new name. WFT. I'm just going to call them WFT. I still I, I'm telling you, the Washington TBDs by the way, why have they not already decided that they're going to be the Washington Sentinels, just like the replacements movie? No, That's think. clearly the answer here. I mean, you don't want to rush a Russian name. I understand that. I'm not you, get the, you get the Washington Sentinels. You get Gene Hackman to voice over the, like, whatever your intro fancy video for social media is. You know, you can, run, you can, run, you can keep your burgundy and yellow, whatever it is, right? And then, you know, at once a year for the, for the throwback uniforms, you use the ones from the movie, the blue and red things. What are they gonna? What's their? What are their helmets gonna look like? What are their? They're gonna keep. They're probably gonna keep the R, right? The they have that throwback R they had. They turn it into an F. An F? Why like football team? Yeah, the I don't know. Team. Maybe it'll be blank. No or decal. FTs. FTs full time. Maybe so. We'll just my take thing. Out, what take if take off the decal? What if they go like ten and six, win the division, and it's like, man, we can't change our name now. Football team wins divisions. <laughs> that's uh yeah that's fantastic you think that's going to upset the itt the it people we have who need to figure out how to you know acronym that and stuff in the I'm database gonna, i'm going to ask them right now <laughs> washington uh, football team i don't know I, I i honestly i think the sentinels is the best thing they could go with i wonder if it's uh i wonder if there's copyright issues of just ripping off a movie like that at IT department. Sign footsteps Falco from Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. So I, I get that you don't want to have to rush into a name. You don't want to just say, yeah. well, we need a name by August, so let's just create something. I cannot believe a professional football team is going by <laughs> football team right now. I right. cannot believe that that is the alternative. I honestly I mean, thought that they were, I thought they were going to have like a lame duck year and use their old name and just be like, well, we did I it for the first. They could. I mean, I, yeah. no, I think they, I, I they thought that they the would. I'm not, I'm not saying they should. I just thought that yeah. I'm saying, I thought, I that think they, they reached the that. point where it had to be taken away. The question is, I'm kind of surprised they felt like if, if you've decided you needed 12 months to find like a name, right. That's fair enough. But I, it, it feels like you could have just lost the, the, the logo, like lost the, the mascot and just been Washington. Washington. That's, I mean, that's the way everybody's been dealing with it usually. Right. So, Washington I don't know. blanks. I think the big part, the big problem is like it's not it's not coming up with the name or dealing with the guy that's squatting on all the 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 uh, copyright things. What are they? The trademarks. Yeah. Um, it's the fact that like there's like millions of dollars worth of merchandise sitting in stores right now that all needs to be like re rolled out if you decide on a new name tomorrow. 
like they could they could spool up you know they could start for the season and maybe get their own crap in order but you can't spool up like you know <laughs> however many stores worth of stuff that all has this thing I'm everywhere gonna, in a couple of weeks during a covid pandemic like that's just send, not possible i'm gonna send a text to some of my washington colleagues and say i need some washington football team gear yeah right wft hat um the so the last question before we bounce out of this somebody was asking some, you see that I'm, I'm sending a text i'm need sorry go ahead. okay I'm just kidding the statistic that the NFL came up with using their NGS stuff, which is essentially uh, rushing yards over expectation, right? Yeah. So they, they plot out the expected yards based off that big data bowl competition they had. And essentially you can explain the majority of all rushing uh, production based off where everybody is at the time the ball is handed off all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, Arizona and Kenyon Drake and all this kind of thing. So therefore, you can quantify the performance of certain running backs over the expected amount. And the right. guy that was at the top of the list, I think, was Derrick Henry. Um, Nick Chubb, I think, was second. I forget what the, the rest of the list was. But somebody was basically asking for our thoughts on the whole list. Um, here, here, are my, here are my thoughts. I'm going to premium stats 2.0. I'm going to add the postseason in. We set the qualifying list. And, okay, yards after contact. Number one, Derrick Henry. Number two, Nick Chubb. Hmm. I would ima- I imagine I'm, – I didn't see the rest of the list either. I think the concept is fine. I think it's probably a concept that probably gets you right back in the ballpark of yards after contact per rush, which is all part of Premium Stats 2.0. Yeah, I mean, it probably has similar. Um, it probably has similar properties. What I, I think it's different in that you know I've I've been sort of making this point with Derrick Henry, which is everybody uses yards after contact as if it's a running back only number, but it isn't, right? Because yards no, after contact is also heavily contingent on what the blocking situation was when that contact happened. So there's a play I pull out as an example of it in the playoffs against the Patriots where Derrick Henry gets, depending on how harsh you want to be in terms of contact, eight to 10 yards of yards after contact, right? But that only happens because Taylor Lewan blocked Dietrich Wise literally 10 yards off the line of scrimmage. And Derrick Henry on outside zone was able to like run in a straight line towards the sideline and basically run clean through like an arm tackle. Right. If instead, and he runs through the track that like Taylor Lewan's ass would have been in had that not happened, right? So if that doesn't happen, he needs to, at the very minimum, run around the block in front of him, which changes everything, right? So that 8 to 10 yards, it's yards after contact, but it's not Derrick Henry 100%. It's Derrick Henry being put in a great position by that specific block on the play. So when you look at it and you say, right, Derrick Henry had like 1,200 yards after contact last year, but clearly the amount that's him is way lower than that. And the takeaway to me but I think the proportions stay the same, right? So the amount that's Derrick Henry specific is way lower, but it's it doesn't change the proportion versus a Nick Chubb versus another guy. What was interesting to me is that I think the number was like Derrick Henry is the only back in the league, I think, over one yard per carry above expectation. So Derrick Henry carried the ball 300 times in the season, which means that that's the very lot. best running back in the NFL is worth about 300 yards more than the average guy. 
which to me kind of backs up all this data of running backs being relatively interchangeable. Yes, Derrick Henry is at the end, like the top end of the spectrum of he's worth more, but like the most you're going to get is 300 more yards in a season. That's like 20, whatever that is, 20 a game, no, 50 a game. What is it? My math is abandoned me at what? the moment. Yeah, 20, 20 something. Yeah, 20 something a game. So that's right. like one shot 25. to Tyreek Hill. My my math too. Yeah. So you're right. Absolutely. I, I so I think again. I think the methodology is fine. Your 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 point is fine too. I imagine within that methodology though, once the once he gets close to Lawan and the defender, the expectation is probably low that he's going to break through. You know what I mean? Because because it's using location of the defenders. I don't know I if think NGS it's the handoff. Okay. All right. Maybe so I'm wrong, maybe... But from my understanding, it's like it's the it's the the position of everybody on the field at the point yep. of the handoff determines most of like your expect your expected rushing yardage. Maybe it tracks yeah. it the whole way. I'm not sure. I thought well, one of our colleagues too had mentioned. I think the expectation for Ravens running backs was higher, and so yeah. you've got you have either good you have good run blocking, you have defenders out of position because of Lamar Jackson. I used to say like when you watched like a really good. Um, the early the zone read teams in college, right? You would see defenders all the time. They weren't worried about shedding blocks. They were looking at finding the ball, right? So, like mm-hmm. traditionally in the run game, as a defensive lineman, what are you worried about? Where's the block coming from? And then how do I defeat it, right? So if it's coming from here, I need to get around it, right? If it's coming from here, I need to get around it because that's generally where they're running. But then you see defenders not only worried about where the block is but they're also trying to find the football. And that is where I think the Russian quarterback uh, and the deception yeah, plus mean, the box count all makes things, you know, more uh, advantageous for the offense. It's like all the Tyrod Taylor stuff that I was talking about, the the Raven stuff that they've been doing. It, you create, yep. it's all option based football, right? You create different places that the ball can go in the space of a run. And even if you, even if you know where it's going, you're suddenly in a much bigger bind in terms of how to stop it, right? There are these plays that the Bills were running where they were, you know, faking an inside zone handoff and then Taylor would keep the ball and have a pitch option. And then they would have, then they would have a speed option coming around the back as well, based off a receiver running like a fake end around. Suddenly like the ball can go four different places off what looked originally just like an inside zone read option play. Like the defense, A, it's not used to looking at that every single play. And B, even if you somehow do match up with that, like if if you if everyone on the back end reads it and doesn't do what you're talking about in terms of, oh, crap, where's the ball? Where's the ball? If they read, read it instantly and reacted to it, you're still suddenly putting one guy on one in space, which is what an offense wants to happen anyway. So you're massively increasing the chances that you're going to have a good play. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think, again, I think the um, the methodology probably is sound. I bet it probably gets in the ballpark. I bet overall it looks similar to yards after contact. To your point, there might be some differences. And your larger point is Derrick Henry, the epitome of 2019 awesome, was 300 yards above the average running back. It's a minimal amount. Now, when you say it's like a yard per carry, that adds, I mean, again, if you're going to run the ball, you'd rather be good at it than not good at it if you're going to do it. So that's great. But I think it also furthers the point that you could be 
incredible at things and barely move the needle per game compared to, um, as you said, one pass down the field. Even, I mean, even the yards per carry thing is, I think, important, right? Because Derrick Henry averaged, what, five yards per carry last season. So what that is telling you is that four of those can be explained simply, like four of those can be explained at the point the ball is handed off to him. Right, like, any other running Derrick back, Henry, like you could throw right. Herschel Walker back there right now and he's picking up four in his that's what I'm saying. current yeah. state of life. So effectively what that statistic is telling you is that Derrick Henry in the run of his life was gaining them an extra one yard compared to what they were going to get anyway. Well, that was like college teams who just chuck it deep with, with no conscience. And they're like, well, I could have four incompletions or three incompletions. But if that fourth one's complete, like it's well worth it. So you go one for four for 30 yards. That's seven and a half yards per attempt, which is still, it's very inefficient one out of four, but it's still moving you to 30 yards on four plays the same way if you had four if you had 30 yards on four straight rushing plays my goodness you feel really good about yourself at seven and a half yards a pop so yeah um it's just i think keeping things in perspective is what that helps us do there was a great line joe montana had when he was talking about like the psychology of offense it was the same thing he's like if you know if you um if you come up and you stop a run for like three yards everyone's like yeah it's a great defensive play it's like you stop like you get a three yard pass it's the same three yards but the psychology is completely different yeah well i think our, eric has said it the other way too how about just the the feel good of a seven yard run again it feels great yeah. everybody in seven blocks have to work well for that to happen right and then sometimes the defense just plays a little off coverage and you throw a little five yard curl you fall forward for two and it's seven and that just feels like oh i was just taking what the defense gave me well they gave you mm-hmm. seven and you took it, and it's just as good as the thing that you worked really, really hard for to get seven, right? So, um, I think it's a good overall. I think it's a good data point, and I think it's yeah. it's particularly good because I think it does mesh with all of the other data that's that sort of says the same thing, right? Which is, yep. it's not that running backs can't move the needle at all; it's that they move the needle a relatively small amount compared with the next guy that you could plug in there. Yeah, and it's it's funny because at PFF we do there's so much time and effort put into uh, grading every single block, grading all that stuff. And then at some point it's, it sounds like, um, man, we put a lot of time and effort into the run game, which we always joke doesn't matter, but like we kind of need all that data to be able to do that analysis, right. That the pass game is more valuable than the run game and um, you know, have all that information on all the blocks. So is that it for today, Sam? All right, man. That's great. So to recap, great show today. A lot of questions. Appreciate all the questions and feedback and the discussions. Next week, we're going to reset. We're going to take a week. Sam's going to turn 38 tomorrow and get a little bit older. Sorry, man. Um, I'm going to be as old as you again. What are you doing for vacation, by the way? What do you? What's your – is it Almost a staycation? We, yeah, pretty much. There's, there's like a cabin out in the middle of nowhere that we're renting for like two days, which is the only – it's funny, right? So, you know, restri- restrictions vaguely lifted or restri- uh, eased in a lot of places. So everyone just like took off to the vacation places as if there's nothing happening, right? So like yeah. everything is actually booked solid, even if huh. you want to go anywhere. And I don't want to go anywhere on a plane forever. Like you Come over to my this. house if you want. Come over Great, and yeah. grill out so one day. So we're looking at, you know, small cabins in the woods you can rent like within driving distance. Um so we got one of those for a couple of days. Everything else, stay around Scout's here pretty gonna, much. Scout's going to love that. Oh, yeah. 
Anyway, well, you you enjoy. We're gonna so we'll do a little one week reset, and then we're gonna come back bigger, better, stronger than ever, in the best shape of our life, getting ready for the 2020 season uh, in two weeks. Uh, so a week from this coming Monday, uh, you want to go? You want to start our division previews? Then we'll see. We'll see what we do. But we sure. could do our division previews. We could do something else. Hit on all the NFL news. So um, enjoy your week off from the PFF NFL podcast, and then. You come back bigger, better, stronger than ever, and in the best shape of your life. And we're going to crush it this 2020 season. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you guys in about a week and a half. All right, you've already heard the news, but let me be the one telling you the news. Let's pretend that I'm the one giving it to you for the first time. Sports are coming back, and there's nothing you can do about it at this point. So your chance to bet on sports now with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. And joining me now is Dave Mason, who's going to be sharing some of the updates of what's coming next to Bet Online. What's happening there, Dave? Uh, lots finally. <laughs> it's oh, been an interesting goodness. few months. You know, I was, I was, I was promoting ping, Russian ping pong and marble races and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But now we're back to some sports I'm somewhat familiar with. So I'm, I'm pretty happy, but getting really busy too. I hear you, man. I mean, it's a, the, the summer's been consumed. Who knew so many people would love golf? But of course, when you, when you can uh, lay down a little bit of loot on it, it makes everything a little more fun. And now, just out on the horizon. If you, you don't even have to squint too hard because they're right there for you. MLB, NBA, and the puck is going to drop. I think in particular for me, the hockey fan, I can't wait for early August to get here with, uh, with 10 straight days of never fewer than, than four or five games, right? So yeah, and, and you guys are ready to take action on all those. Yep, and we have the odds ready to rock. MLB comes first. Um, in, in, we have our odds. We have great timelines in those. All the futures are up. The World Series, everything, we're ready to go. Of course, you had to tweak some rules here and there with a 60-game season. You know, we had a, no action all the season win totals and put up new season win totals. And then um, there's been a little bit of a cat-and-mouse game, very hectic. Going to slow times, even though it was slow and they're running sports, we're adjusting on the fly on stuff like that. Then the following week, the NBA starts with that eight-game regular season. We have season win. And once again, we had a no action all the season win totals because they didn't play the complete season. But we opened the eight-game season win totals for the many the many season coming up and all the playoff odds, et cetera. Then, yep, reduced juice NHL is back after that. So, And then we get into the NFL discussion, right? Oh, now now we're really talking. It's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. You know, we I think back like every November, there's that one or two days when all four sports are are in um in session together, and 
and what is the sports equinox. Now we're going to have a two month long sports equinox and it's going to be insane. So the guys, the guys are rested up and they're ready to rock. So I can't wait. Move over March madness. Here comes August Augustness. I don't know. Work on that. You can, <laughs> we let's, let, let's workshop that a little yes, bit, sir. but man, August figures to be just divine. And like you say, pro football on the other side of uh, summertime kicking off. And it, it really looks like everything's tracking in the right direction there for us to get uh, our most beloved of, of all sports. It must be tough to divine. I mean, tougher, obviously we got a good look at um, what, which teams were relevant in terms of, chasing the title in the NBA same goes for the NHL and the lag and how that might impact the players notwithstanding I assume that um, that that setting the lines the futures for Major League Baseball here has been especially tough with a 60 game slate coming up right no absolutely I mean we're we're in kind of uncharted uh, grounds of territory and you know you, you're not just paying attention to injury news now you're paying attention to the COVID news too you know Zion Williamson leaves, leaves the camp now. Who knows what's going on there? I hope everything's all right. But I'm again, I'm just talking from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to come back. Who knows how long he's going to be gone? When he comes back, he's going to have to quarantine. Is that going to? Is he going to miss games because of that? And is that going to affect? You know, with that that news came out, we started getting hit by some um, some some bets on the other side. So it, it's just you know crazy. All these situations that are just so unique to all of us in the business um you know i mentioned all the no action and season win totals and then putting up uh amended season win totals for an eight game season for god's sakes so it's it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting few months but we're just so happy the games are back we know there's gonna be some unique situations where you know we're gonna get hit and uh you know, the injury reports are going to be different than they used to be, right? Uh, yeah. It, it, we'll adapt. Betters will adapt. And, and as long as the games are on TV tonight, that's all we care about. We'll yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's not being cavalier. Obviously, everybody's uh, everybody's aware of how bizarre the, the 2020 year has been on so many fronts. And I wonder, though, if there's a, some uh, smart angle of looking at, guys in major league baseball specifically who have a knack of coming, you know, guys who, who light it up in, in uh, early season uh, perennially guys who, whose bats are hot in, in, you know, April and May, and then they tend to cool off in the second half of um, focusing on uh, if, if um, a team has a preponderance of those guys who fit that description, if they're suddenly become a a, a nice little sleeper play for you there, those are the kind of, unique things that you can look for here in 20. Absolutely. Especially, you know, and, and stuff like props too, you know, mm-hmm. season leader for home runs, uh, stuff like that. Well, you're, you know, how does, you know, you're throwing out a guy who, who starts slow and has a great summer. Well, that great summer, that's the start of the season. Now guys, you know, we all have those guys who, who don't hit well during the cold months. And then when the summer heat, man, they, they're, 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 lightning in a bottle so you're gonna have to adjust odds accordingly okay that that player's gonna be meat and potatoes for two or two and a half months and right uh, and go from there so absolutely there's all sorts of angles and our guys are trying to keep up with it we have some very sharp betters here at bet online and they're all over it too 
Well, believe me, I'm looking at uh, the NFL futures as we speak. And uh, uh, given more time, I would go over all 32 with you, give you my, uh, my uh, bets on all of those. But let's save that for another day. You know, we don't have to cover it all right now, Dave. Let's, uh, let's kick it down the road before things kick off and review all of those. And, uh, and maybe we can uh, offer up some that, Dave Damashek's best bets. And then the listener, the savvy listener, will promptly go against all of those and win a lot of money. Um, with, with, with bet online AG, but in the meantime, thanks for the, for the time, Dave. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Much obliged again to Dave Mason. Uh, be sure you visit betonline.ag and don't forget that promo code podcast one for your sign up bonus bet online, your online sports book experts.